The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. And this program, A Beacon of Light light and Hope, for Tuesday, September 25th. Um, I am Dr. Mary Joanne Lang, and I'm sitting in today for Terry Aranga. Uh, with me is Mr. Edward McGill, Chief Operating Officer of Beacon Day School. Our guests today are particularly interesting. First is Michael Sanders, well, Michael Sanders and Lisa Redley. Michael Sanders holds an MBA and is president of Clark Dodge Asset Management. He has over 19 years of experience, uh, 19 years of experience. Okay, Michael's oldest child was diagnosed with autism when he was two years of age. Lisa Redley holds an MBA and is Vice President of client, Private Client Services for Clark Dodge Asset Management. She brings over 15 years of financial investment services expertise. Her son has also been diagnosed with autism uh, on the autism spectrum disorder. Lisa serves on the board of the Elizabeth Burt Center for Autism Law and Advocacy and the National Autism Association's New York Metro Chapter. She also co-leads the NAA Westchester Group. Our topic today is of crucial importance and is life care planning. Well, welcome to Michael and Lisa. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the first question um, is, why do we need to discuss life care planning for special needs individuals? Sure. Well, let, let, let me let me briefly mention a couple of things. I think, okay. like like anything else um, in life, um, if you can't measure it and you don't plan for it, you don't know where you are and you don't know where you're going. And I think, with respect to families with special needs children, um, the variables out there are so uncertain um, and. Time is precious and short. The idea to take time, plan, because we've got benefits involved, um, financial issues that uh, are irrevocable if poor decisions are made. So it's almost more important for families that have special needs children to plan today so that you know, financial mistakes aren't made in the future. That's to say the least. It's a, and it's a very challenging area where most people – 
don't um, understand the complexities of it. So what's the, I, the, the only thing, other thing I'd add there is yes. um, this idea that it becomes a very emotional time. Again, you know, uh, speaking from personal experience around this, um, we tend to want to focus on healing our children. Um, and, and sometimes people don't plan because they feel like they're giving up. And um, I, I think that that's a bad decision. Um, we should plan, and, and, and at least in financial planning, we plan for the worst and hope for the best. And, and that typically gives us a sense of comfort um, once you do it. Thank you. Thank you. What, well, how much does this cost? I mean, if, if you're planning, uh, let, me, uh, let me first ask you, do you do this in two stages, like from um, elementary school to age 22, and then you have another a life care plan from 22 to 75, and I believe the – 75 is generally what you plan for. Is that correct? That's correct. And then I guess um, it's, it isn't really totally set in stages. Obviously, children that are covered by education um, programs, so that, that early stage from, you know, early, you know, elementary to, to high school or th- through where the school systems will cover children, that is one period, and the following is a second we look at these things in a very dynamic manner. Um, many of our families um, have other children. They have other events um, that are happening in their lives. Um, so without it sounding um, too onerous, it is somewhat dynamic. I think we have to plan for the future, and we do break that into two tranches But I, I, as far as time periods. But I would tell you that it is very dynamic. It's fluid. If you think of our lives financially, at least, um, things change. You may be earning more income or maybe you've lost your job. So um, things happen where the plan has to be pretty dynamic. Uh, Lisa, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, no, I, I think, no, that's great, Mike. Thank you. That, that covers uh, a great part of it and, and the planning. Thank you. Well, where do we start in this process? Okay, well, I'll take that. Thank you, Dr. Lang. Um, first of all, um, in terms of some of the broad categories of how you look at life care planning, uh, I could break it down in terms of what is the profile. So what is the profile of, of the child or the person with the disabilities? Um, what is their medical needs? What is the severity of their disability? Um, what are some of the requirements for that child? Um, and the details of what their educational uh, process has been, uh, what some of their favorite preferences or favorite things are. Um, And then we can go into what a life plan is for them, a living plan, also known as a letter of intent. Um, And it's really important, and it's not a legal document, but a living plan is is really important because if uh, the parents are no longer there or not able to take care of the child, or for anybody else that would be able to help with the child, um, whether the child's living at home or in a group home or a residential home, is knowing what the child, the characteristics of the child or the person with the disability is. And it's very important to, and it changes over time uh, from a young age, and obviously as the child or the person becomes older, things will change. So it's very important to have many different um, aspects of what the child, um, again, preferences are, favorite activities, all the way down to their favorite friends or favorite relatives. 
Um, and then the next part um, is the financial needs and the liquidity and what is required for that child um, to survive, um, whether they're getting Medicaid benefits um, and what supplemental income they will need to um, be able to have a, have a happy, healthy life. And, and maybe, Mike, you could add, add there in terms of what the financial needs would be and how would we look at that from our perspective at Clark Dodge. That's right. I think, I think the two pieces here, though, that are important is the qualitative aspect, which Lisa just laid out. You know, where you begin, I, th- I think, Dr. Lang, you asked that question, and where we begin is, is really um, documenting um, where the child is and, and those needs. So that qualitative component, I almost say in many cases, is more important because if we don't understand um, what the needs are um, of that child or that adult with a disability, um, how can the caregivers going forward if they've got all the resources in the world financially, if they don't understand the qualitative aspects of what that child needs, um, the financial piece is, is somewhat immaterial. We spend all this time focusing for most of our clients on the financial piece. For our families with special needs, not that the financial piece is any less relevant, but if we don't understand the child and we don't understand what the family's desires are with respect to taking care of them, the financial piece becomes much less important. Um, but once we've done that, the quantitative piece, um, it's like any other financial planning with a customized bent to it in understanding um, these variables. So this idea of taking a family through financial statements, um, creating a net worth, um, looking at their cash flow. A family without special needs may need 6 to 12 months of living expenses um, in cash. A family uh, with a child with special needs, maybe we keep we bump up the expense budget because of things that may not be covered. So this idea of pure financial statements, looking at where they are, their net worth, their cash flows. Income tax planning. What items are deductible? What aren't deductible? Um, how does their health insurance um, come into play? And, boy, is that a hot uh, button today. Yes, um, it, cer- it certainly <laughs> is. And I'm um, sure it's on a lot of people's minds. Th- that's right. So this idea of, of paying attention to, to what I call you know, financial statements, including your income taxes, cash flow, and then the more broader categories of risk management insurance, what types of insurance, how do you take care of um, if something does happen to the parents, um, how, what type of insurance should they buy? How should that be left? What are their resources um, with respect to the ability to take care of their um, children or child in this case? Uh, and then the normal planning. They want to plan for retirement potentially at some point, or they want to accumulate assets. We have younger families who haven't accumulated lots of money. Um, maybe they want to figure out how they're going to buy a home. Um, so mm-hmm. it's, it's the normal financial planning with this um, understanding of some variables that um, <laughs> if you don't walk through this process um, with experience, you may leave them out. And, and then the last consideration is these benefits, government benefits, whether it's supplemental security income or other programs, um, making sure that assets from an estate planning standpoint that are left to children with uh, disabilities or special needs, that those assets are protected so that the family can kind of maximize um, their financial situation. Sorry well, to drone on, but hopefully that's helpful. It, yes, and my understanding here in California is, is if the child has $2,000 in his name, then he may not qualify for certain 
benefits. So it has to be in some sort of trust. And I know we'll get to that um, a, a little bit later, but um, it, it can be pretty scary. Very scary. And, and what, what disqualifies someone from benefits are things that we, we may not even think. And I don't know if we want to cover that a little bit later, Dr. Lang, or, or, or now. But there are some real, um, what I call, um, missteps that you want to avoid with respect to leaving um, assets or, um, you know, monies to, to children with special needs. So we, we can talk more about that later. Okay. Well, let's see. Well, is there any estimate, I mean, uh, you know, of how much it costs? I, I've heard, every, I've heard um, everything from, well, we're going to depend on government funding to millions of dollars. Right. So is there any comment or thought about that? Because I think people are very confused. Yeah, I think, um, uh, Dr. Lang, I, I'd like to uh, say I think this is really important frame, framework for our audience to understand. Um, the lifetime cost, and, and it was estimated by the Autism Society, which is a national autism mm -hmm. uh, nonprofit organization, estimates that the lifetime cost of caring for a child with autism ranges from $3.5 million to $5 million for their entire life and in the United States. And Collectively, the United States is facing almost $90 billion annually in the cost for autism. And this figure includes research, insurance costs, non-covered expenses, Medicaid waivers, educational spending, housing, transportation, employment, and so forth. So that's $90 billion annually for autism. And we all know that the numbers, every time the CDC releases new numbers, um, it's epidemic proportions that uh, autism is increasing. So these figures are just based on 1 in 88 um, children that have a diagnosis for autism, and that's based on children born in 2000. That's just based oh on children born in 2000. Um, so that's the most recent uh, CDC numbers, and that's 1 in 54 boys um, have an autism diagnosis. So the costs are astronomical, and as parents and as educators and, and financial planners, um, there needs to be a consideration of planning um, for each individual family. And we all hear that so many different social service programs are, for lack of a better word, broke um, in the government. That's why it's so important to, um, regardless of what your assets are, as a family to plan and to make considerations. And there's many things that people might not have considered. Um, so it's very important to start planning as soon as possible. Well, that certainly is the understatement. Who would you consider to be part of this uh, financial team? And how often should this team be looked at? Because, I mean, when a child is little, you might have a pediatrician versus a person who is older, you might, you'd have an internist. And um, so I don't know how... Uh, who the essential members of the team are and who would be the auxiliary members of this team. 
Sure. Well, let me let me let me start with um, certainly the parents, um, and I find that one parent is focused on one area, another is typically focused on another area. Actually, just to a little experience with my wife and I, she was focused on the educational um, focus. I was focused more, obviously, because of my background on the financial and our our family needs. But but I think the parents, um, just starting with them. Um, together has to figure out, you know, what role each of them is going to play. Then certainly their attorney, their accountant, their financial planner or investment advisor. Um, and then that, that would be the core team, those four components in, in, in our opinion. With the auxiliary um, people floating around the outside, their pediatrician, um, their um, other doctors, other family members, I think communication to family members that may serve as trustee or guardian um, for these children should something happen to the parents really need to be in that secondary team. I, so, I think they just gave us a musical signal that we have to take a break. Okay. So um, we, will be, we will be back, um, and we, I look forward to continuing the discussion. Thank you. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling. Whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Uh, comments or thoughts about that? Just, just that the team is critical, like um, in anything else, strong communication, this idea that Lisa had brought up before of letters of intent and written instructions. So, you know, documenting these things, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. And often, um, given this is such an emotional time for families, documenting does give some peace and comfort because you write it down and it gets out of your head versus worrying about these things all the time. Um, But the team, just 
quick summary on that. It's the parents, and typically one parent versus the other takes a little bit more um, of a financial involvement. Um, their attorney, um, the accountant, and then their financial planner and investment advisor. I think that's the core team. A couple of times a year meeting if things are you know, going fine, um, at least once a year. And then the supplemental team would include um, any doctors or medical caregivers, um, educational um, representatives, um, and then I think lastly, other family members that might be the ones who would be the guardian of the child or the trustee of any assets that are left to the child should be looped in so that they are aware of the situation. But I, I think the team's critical, and, and those are the two, you know, the, the primary and then secondary team. Well, obviously, this has to be a legal document, right? The, the, the letter of intent, and Lisa, you may want to chime in on that. Yeah, the letter of intent is not a legal binding document at all. It is just a document, a reference document that is collected over a period of time by the parents or the caregiver of what the child's needs are, from medical to educational um, to just, you know, uh, particular preferences to even uh, activities, uh, recreational activities that the uh, child would like. Uh, so, and it's not legally binding. Things that are legally binding, which uh, Mike uh, will go into in the, a little later on, is uh, trust, special needs trust. So, a letter of intent, there's many different places you can start by um, even going on the internet and looking at some examples of, of letters of intent. Um, many parents, uh, first, when they find out that their child is diagnosed, starts a file of all their educational. Um, uh, uh, therapists and educational um, services that they're receiving for their child and and all the medical doctors and all the different various things that uh, their child would need. So that's already, most people have started something like that, so you can continue on and, and summarize it. And it's supposed to be a document that if, God forbid, you, you the parents are no longer um, there, someone could take this document and really um, carry on where the parents left off to the best of their ability. I think I'll chime in. The one example, okay. and the, the best I can give on this, and again, this is qualitative, is if you put an itchy sweater on my daughter when she was five years old, the day was ruined. <laughs> and, and where would that have been documented, and who would have known that should something have happened to my wife and I? And I think that's a critical component. The legal component of this comes into in the parents' wills, the trusts that are formed, other things that become irrevocable at that point. But um, this kind of uh, letter of intent or series of documents that kind of spell out how the caregiver is to help take care of uh, your child. Okay. That, that is really uh, terrific. Um, Eddie, would you like to – I know you had an interest in trusts. Would you like to uh, continue the conversation concerning um, – assets to be included and the different kinds of trusts? Well, one of the things I actually wanted to uh, ask uh, Mr. Sandler's and uh, Ms. Rudley was, you know, you talk about the qualitative aspect and, um, you know, we have um, the IEP and the IEP team. Um, all, all, document, all these documents are supposed to document a lot of those things like, you know, sensory issues with regard to an itchy sweater and things like that. 
in terms of those educational documents um, or even medical documents, um, what can parents do to make sure that they essentially stay in existence or are relevant to um, things like this letter of intent you're discussing? Sure. Lisa, you want to take a first shot? Uh, yeah, no, I think uh, to keep these documents relevant and uh, certainly um, available, it's very important that they're copied and given to um, very trusted family members, um, attorney, attorneys, um, and accountants that might be on that financial team and secondary team that Mike spoke about. Um, and, and I think that's very important because, again, it's, it's almost the journal and the life of, of the child and the parents with, with the child. Uh, so I think it's, uh, there are many ways to make sure that that's documented. Uh, if a child um, is in a residential home, uh, the administrators of that home should also have that document, and um, the, it should be reviewed as, um, as often as necessary. And uh, that, that is the way to make sure that um, that information is available to all people that will be caring for this child. I think, I think the one thing I would add to that um, is wills of the parents are critical um, because if you have multiple children who's going to be the guardian of that child um, not not that it isn't important for a family without special needs children but ones that, that do it's, it's got to be that discussion really has it's a huge responsibility so I think that that has to come ahead of time to the discussions of which family member or who's going to be the guardian of that child and then that family member may not know what an IEP is or may not so the, I think the IEP EP, the educational plan, that, that would be a subset of this overall documentation. Um, but, but certainly, um, I, think, I think part of that, um, but, but legally stating who the guardians are and making those selections ahead of time and um, queuing those family members in is critical. And that, that, that will keep the legacy and the transition um, in the unlikely event that something happens as smooth as possible. I like that, um, Ms. Rugley, you said it was kind of the journal, journal of the child's life. And, I mean, that is really the intent of documents like that, and they're supposed to stay with them, you know, as they proceed through uh, the, the educational system and transition as well. So I think I, 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 it was really important what both of you said because I don't think parents realize that, you know, that the IEP can be such a valuable component in, you know, the, helping determine financial needs and also picking those responsible people that will, um, in case of emergency, have to take over guardianship for the children. Um, well, let's, let's, let's go on to uh, trust. Uh, Mike, what are uh, the different types of trusts? Sure. We, we, first of all, there, there's too many different types of trust in general out there, but when it relates to this concept of a, a special needs or supplemental needs trust, it really, those names in many cases, depending on which attorney you work with, kind of flip-flop. But the real distinction comes down to what are called self-funded and third-party trusts, okay? Um, the self-funded are relatively straightforward. Um, a, a child, when they're born, uh, money's left, you know, they, they, get for, they, they get some money as gifts. Uh, they have assets in their name. Uh, uh, or through medical malpractice or some other award, they receive funds. And those funds in their name directly um, violates um, or, or uh, restricts them from benefits. 
So the child at that point, through the guardian, can take assets that they have in their name and fund them into a supplemental needs or a special needs trust. Um, that means they're self-funded. The child is now given those funds to a trust. The child no longer has assets in their name and can then receive uh, government or, or benefits um, in one form or the other. The catch with that is that those trusts are subject to the nasty term I like to call a clawback. That means government agencies, at the demise of the child, government agencies that mm -hmm. um, provided benefits can claw back um, dollars that were paid out to the child. So self-funded, the child has assets in their name. The best thing to do is to not have assets in a child's name um, to begin with, but if they win an award or there were assets you know, given to them early, um, they then um, put them in this self-funded trust. Okay, and the trustee can be the parent um, or somebody that that's responsible. Is third party, third party trust. The second part is this: where a gift is given, either the parents, grandparents, someone else, a third party provides assets for the child's benefit um, to supplement their needs. Um, Maybe they need a new computer. Maybe they need um, to pay for therapies that aren't covered. Um, uh, the, the list is long, and Lisa, we, we can talk about some of those in, in a moment. And you've got some great experience around that. But this is a trust, a third-party trust. The assets were funded by someone else. And when the child passes on, those assets, that any monies that are left in the trust, are then dispersed to whoever the original uh, grantor leaves it. Let's say it's you have three children, you'd put money in a special needs trust, the child passes on, the assets then, in a classic case, would go to the other two surviving children or their heirs. Um, so there's control of those assets, and those are never subject to clawback or subject to um, you know, government or any agencies taking those uh, funds. So those are the two broad categories. So let me just, I'll use my family as an example. I have my daughter who has special needs, and I have three other children. Yes. So if I, uh, my daughter has a special needs trust, I think it is subject to this clawback um, yes. that you reference. Can I put a third-party trust in place, or am I stuck with this? No, nope. um, you, you can. You can. You would set up a second trust. It has to be separate, different tax ID number, completely separate entity, and then those assets would be there to um, provide additional resources to your uh, child with special needs, and would not be subject to any callback. And any money, residual monies left in that, then can go to your other children. So the the money that was left in the first special needs trust can go to this other trust at the end of... Uh, yeah, after this, this callback or this accounting is done, whatever would be left after the accounting then can go... Um, to heirs, but any any funds that were that that were considered self-funded or funded by assets that were in the child's name is subject to um, you know government scrutiny and this potential clawback. Yeah. Okay. Right, we're going to have to well, continue this uh, after the break. Okay. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Every weekend, take some time out of your schedule for new reflections featuring Dr. Adam Rubenstein. It's a show about all things aesthetic, from skin care to plastic surgery, health and beauty. You'll learn about the aesthetic products and procedures to embrace or avoid. Each show will feature live, virtual, interactive consultations that you'll be able to follow along with and featured guests from the world of beauty and aesthetics. Listen Saturdays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, for new reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Hi, this is Dr. Mary Jo Lang, and I'm with Mr. Edward McGill, Chief Operating Officer at Vegan Day School, along with um, Michael Sanders and Lisa Redley. And we have been talking about special needs trusts and how and the clawback uh, from the government. So, Mike, do you want to pick that up? Sure. Um, and that clawback is just this. It sounds like such a nasty term. It's it's. Um, it is a nasty situation, though, when, when assets are left directly um, to a child and, and either um, restrict them from government benefits or not. So, the, you know, in recap, the supplemental or special needs trust, as it calls, is a trust. It's a, you know, a legal document creating an entity that files its own tax return. Assets can be left in those trusts for the benefit of children, allowing them to get um, government aid and other benefits, and any additional expenses that the child would like to incur, a computer or special therapies, this trust can then pay third parties to um, support um, the child. And there's two types of them. In very broad terms, self-funded, which are assets that the children um, themselves have, either through an award or assets that were given to them early on, they can put money in the trust. Any money in the self-funded trust would be subject to a clawback for uh, benefits that were paid to the child over their lifetime. Um, And then the third-party trust, which is a parent or a grandparent or assets that are left for the child by a third party, um, those assets would not be subject to any clawback. Those assets can be used um, to as supplemental or special needs for the for the child. Um, and then any money that's left in those trusts after can be distributed to different heirs, their uh, siblings or a- anyone else that the grantor who funds this third-party trust decides. That's written up in the document. 
both of those trusts are irrevocable. So once you fund them, once you put money in there, there's no looking back. You can't make changes and change things. So um, these are pretty serious decisions that have to go into place in, in making those decisions and funding them. Wow. Okay. Well, then, who administers this kind of trust? Because I understand you can go to a bank or you can have an accountant or who who does that? So, so I'm a big fan of not having um, corporate, either bank or other financial trust companies, be the administer of the corporate trustee. And the primary reason is those fees are very costly. And um, unfortunately, there's a lot of conflicts of interest. The bank or financial institution also acting as trustee, um, you know, they pretty much have the right to control the account. Um, I always recommend, in many cases it can't happen, but I always recommend as a starting point that a um, responsible family member be the trustee, the trustee of those assets, and a trustee acts as what they call a fiduciary, meaning acting as if it were your own money for the benefit of the child. Um, That trustee is in charge of where the funds should be held, what bank, what brokerage firm, what institution, um, how it should be invested, and then the disbursements of those assets. So the trustee is the key person. Um, And again, my first starting point is that a responsible family member, maybe an accountant, maybe an attorney, um, can be the trustee. Um, If you don't have anyone that you're comfortable with as far as, uh, you know, family member, accountant, attorney, you can hire a corporate trustee um, to do that. Uh, The only issue is that it becomes a bit more expensive. And as we know, uh, in the world where people don't make lots of money in the stock market, um, those costs can eat away at the principal um, for the child mm-hmm. and, you know, having less money there. So, you know, the, the person who administers it is really the trustee, and, and finding a good trustee um, is a difficult task, but, you know, often people have, you know, family members that they trust. Well, I'm going to turn this back over to uh, Mr. McGill because he's very interested in the parents' work situation because most of the families we hear we have here at Beacon are still working. So, um, Eddie, do you want to go forward with this? Yeah. So, Mr. Sanders, what uh, what about the parents' work situations? Are are they involved? Their 401k or their uh, IRA? Sure. I mean, I I think qualified plans, IRAs, 401ks, anything or life insurance that has a beneficiary designation, so things that don't go through the will. I would say one of the most common issues that I see with families is they do a will and they think that the will captures everything. The will is strictly a catch-all. So if you have a 401k, an IRA, a life insurance, an annuity, things with beneficiary designations, those things never get to the will. So my biggest worry for many of our our families is when I look at a 401k of a parent who's got special needs, they usually leave it to the surviving spouse and then to their children. Well, a child with special needs that inherits an IRA or a 401k plan, that would completely violate um, the income or asset uh, minimums to receive these benefits. So making the beneficiary either the other children or the special or supplemental needs trust um, of the 401k or IRA or even most employers do offer some life insurance benefits, making sure that those beneficiary designations are properly completed and that uh, money is not left 
inadvertently um, to those uh, to a child with special needs. It's just not that the child shouldn't have those assets to provide for them, but it shouldn't be left directly to them. And and too often we see um, the spouse as a beneficiary and the contingent all my children. Well, that wouldn't be good. So um, those things really have to be paid attention to. Thank, thank you for asking that question. I think it's it's a critical one, and it's very mundane, but it's it's really important. And I just want to add to that, Mike. I think it's very important that the people on your team, such as the attorneys and the accountants and the investment advisors, take you through all those types of questions and that they're very um, versed in, in special needs trusts and educational plans and tax accounting for um, these situations. And, and what Mike uh, just took us through is, is what we take our clients through it's very important, and un- unfortunately, uh, sometimes it's missed. And, and we're, we pride ourselves on not missing those pitfalls um, of planning. And like Mike said, it could be mundane, but it's, it's very important because a 401K could have grown significantly over time, um, and, and um, you would not want that to be left to, directly to that child with special needs. And so how would uh, a family uh, with a child with special needs kind of spread this message to grandparents or aunts and uncles about bequeathing assets to, um, you know, the individual with special needs? Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's straightforward. I, I think um, it really needs to be – look, we, we have one that we've worked with for many years, and the grandparents didn't get it, um, and they wound up leaving the child the assets. We, we, but, you know – it really has to just be through communication, explaining that the child receives benefits or potentially will receive benefits and that, um, you know, they can leave the special needs trust as the beneficiary. So if it's a life insurance policy, um, instead of writing the child's name in, you write in the name of the trust. Um, so it's, it's about communication. It's about explaining that to family members. And it's not that complicated, meaning um, the beneficiary gets written in the special, you know, special needs trust for, you know, Jane Smith. It's um, not overly complicated, but it, it, it just needs to be done. And many times the grandparents might, and, and uncles and aunts, because the child has special needs, um, might in their mind think, oh, we need to leave a lot more money for, you know, this grandchild or, or niece or nephew because they're in need. And so that's why uh, it's very important to share, um, share that with um, family members that might be right. leaving money to your children. And then what about uh, life insurance, you know, either the parents or the child's? That's right. I, I, think, I think life insurance, um, I'm not a huge fan of insurance in general to the extent that I don't know, not to be overly biased, but insurance companies seem to always come out on top. Um, but, but in the case where you have a young um, family or ones potentially that have not accumulated a significant amount of assets and want to make sure that their child um, of special needs um, has something there to make sure, let's say there isn't government aid in the future, something we brought up a little bit before, the costs are skyrocketing. We've got a government deficit um, that continues to skyrocket. Um, maybe these benefits are going to be cut in the future. So um, families, that was a major concern that I had. Um, so leaving life insurance, leaving the beneficiary of life insurance um, to the child in a trust 
is a great way of leveraging it, meaning that insurance, you can buy lots of life insurance, typically for not too much money. Um, the types of insurance, you know, run the gamut. For children with special needs where we know that benefit has to be there, it's not a good idea to, write, to buy term. These have to be more permanent type of insurance solutions. Um, so we sit down with the family once we've taken them through cash flow, planning and understand um, what their expenses are and how they're balancing all their other financial goals, um, we set up a plan whereby they've got, they take out life insurance specifically for that child with the beneficiary being a special needs or supplemental needs trust for that child. We talked about beneficiaries and uh, trustees, guardians. Uh, Ms. Rudley, uh, can we change these things as we go through life and, you know, uh, see other circumstances and um, might uh, want to work out a better situation for our, our children? Sure, um, absolutely. You can change your will over time. Um, things do change. Um, trustees and, and guardians uh, that may be named or the guardians that may be named in, the tr in your will might have changed, might have passed on. Um, you might meet new people in your life that you believe would be a better um, caregiver of your child. So absolutely, just keep in mind that it, it would involve a legal fee when you know you would need to if you would need to change this legal document. But absolutely, things are fluid and things are always changing, um, and situations are changing. And I think it's important to review your will, um, you know, periodically, and especially if something has significantly changed. And, and reviewing all, all of. All right, we're gonna. Sorry about that, Ms. Rudy. We're gonna have to take a break. <laughs> we'll be right back. Thank you. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Do you know the four major principles to healthy living? If we incorporate these principles in our everyday decisions, we could all live better and healthier lives. Tune in to The Joys of Healthy Living with your host, Dr. Ed Dodge. By tuning in each week, you can learn about the four principles for healthy living and how to incorporate them into your life. Dr. Dodge and his guest experts will share tips and discoveries from every aspect of health. The Joys of Healthy Living is broadcast live every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on VoiceAmericaKids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Hi, this is Dr. Mary Joanne Lang and Mr. Edward McGill, Chief Operating Officer of Beacon Day School. Our guests today are Michael Sanders and Lisa Redley, and we're talking about life care planning for individuals with autism and disabilities. So let's resume the conversation with, uh, we were just talking about uh, parents and grandparents' estates, I believe. 
Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to add to that? Um, we were, you know, just in terms of, of changing any wills and, and people in, in your life and with that child, um, and, and things are always fluid. And so, for instance, if you have a will and you're um, young parents in your, say, 30s and your guardian may be your sister or brother or family members, things change over time, and, and it's always important to review that and review the guardian's of um, who you're deeming to be um, the guardian of your child because it's very important because they will be the caregivers um, in making those decisions for um, your child with disabilities. One question that I do have, and this may be a state-to-state issue, is conservatorship because when the parent dies, it's my, how do they, do you know anything about how that conservatorship changes to is that in the will is that in a letter of intent is that where is that the, the guard it, typically a guardian is named um, within the will um, so that's a testamentary meaning you know it happens as a you know uh, by order of death so if mm-hmm. the parent is the you know uh, has the you know either guardian or the conservatorship it's then named in their will um, who will replace them and is the court bound by that, or can they change that? Huh. Uh, the court's bound by that, um, uh, with the exception that um, someone might petition the court that um, that didn't make that 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 shouldn't be the case. Um, mm-hmm. Fortunately, we've seen you know some state litigation around these things, less around the guardianship, more around how the assets were divided, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but. I think um, you know that most of the surrogate courts have um, a lot to deal with with people that don't have wills um, dying intestate, where the surrogate court then makes the local surrogate court makes a decision on who gets the who's the guardian of the property and the assets. Um, that when the, someone is named in a will, they'll typically, you know, judges will typically go right. Th- you know, will will if somebody took the time to do a will. They'll just allow that to progress through unless there's any, you know, any conflicts or someone else comes forward. Right. And just to add, the conservatorship um, might be just limited to just the management of the property and the financial affairs, where a guardian is, will encompass all the personal affairs. Ah, okay. All right. Eddie, I, I, can do you I wanna... add one? Oh, this is, and this I'll be brief, um, asset division. So two children, three children, four, whatever it is. The thought process of who gets left what, if someone has a, I'll just pick a million-dollar estate, um, including a home, uh, they've got retirement accounts, a home, some other assets, maybe some coins, collectibles. Um, the, the easiest thing to do with a child with special needs is not leave them retirement assets because one of the problems with retirement assets is that there are required minimum distributions, which mm. blow up. Forget that it blows up the asset component. It potentially will create problems with respect to the income. So um, if you've got, just make it easy, two children, half of your assets in retirement plans, half not, you're better off leaving the, ass, the retirement plans to the child without special needs and leave the other assets to the child with special needs. It just helps from an income tax standpoint and makes things a little cleaner. 
may not always be perfect. Life doesn't work that way. But um, those decisions and how the assets get divided, um, you know, clients don't know. They just come and they say, we want everything to be equal or we want this. So that thought process is really important with respect to setting up one's estate. Okay. Let's see. Eddie, do you have any? I think, uh, Ms. Rudley, you know, there are a lot of parents out there that don't have things like life insurance and uh, 401K or even a savings account, especially, you know, in the, in the nature of uh, this economy right now. Um, how, can, how can they plan or uh, what decisions are left for them to participate in? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and it's a real important one to answer. Uh, from our perspective, uh, how a parent can participate, they can certainly do that letter of intent. It's very important to have that uh, qualitative document of the profile of the child and all their needs. That's way, the one way they can participate. Another way is there's many resources out there, nonprofit organizations that might be offering assistance. And so it's real easy these days to get onto the Internet or, and look up a local chapter uh, that's helping families with disabilities in terms of helping with scholarships, helping with um, some uh, grants to help their child along, and possibly grants to get into a situation um, of organizations that might help um, in caring for that child when they're gone. Um, there's many things to do. Uh, certainly, uh, one website to look at is, of course, Medicaid, um, www.medicaid.gov, um, also to see what other benefits they might be missing. Um, so they can participate in, in researching potential scholarships, grants, um, other government benefits, benefits, and really keeping track of that letter of intent. And possibly, if they're working, uh, they can speak with their human resource department to find out maybe there is such a thing um, in terms of life insurance that they can participate in, even if uh, you know they didn't think so that, that they could have in the past. Okay, and Mr. Sanders, uh, you know we've been talking a lot about financial planning or meeting with accountants and possibly even attorneys. How much do th things like this cost for you know your average uh, working parent? Sure. I mean, the range is broad depending on how much work needs to be done, but I, I think like anything else, the cost of not making the decisions are greater. Um, a typical financial plan incorporating some legal work, um, depending on how extensive, maybe in the two to $7,000 range um, of out-of-pocket costs. Um, I would uh, caution everyone that if there is an out-of-pocket cost, there's some other hidden costs, so I'm a big believer. Let me know what I'm paying for. Tell me up front. Um, don't sell me something where an advisor will get a commission and those fees are hidden because the, the advice will never be objective. So I'm giving you a broad range. It's very difficult to point that down, but you know, from a couple of thousand dollars to you know, maybe seven dollars or $8,000, uh, depending on how complicated um, a situation is. And that's including the investment advisor, the accountant, and the attorney, as Mike said. That's correct. Uh, so it's a team of people. Wow. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, I think I think Eddie, you covered this um, about living hand to mouth and no life insurance, no four hundred one k, and. Um, I'm just curious, we're setting up a situation here for our employees. Would you um, um, 
and I think we're gonna I think we're gonna do a four hundred one k or an IRA. Which do you think would be better for employees from a company point of view? The the company uh, point the four hundred one k will allow more money to be contributed. Um, there are issues with respect to what they call discrimination testing, so that everybody gets, um, you know, some contribution. It's, mm-hmm. It really depends on the company's profitability, the owners, and and how much they want to allocate or not allocate. Um, but you know, simple IRAs are very uh, inexpensive to administer and allow people to put money away tax-free. Um, and 401ks tend to be um, much more robust, but tend to be a little bit more expensive to administer. Ah, well, that's what I needed to know. Good. But, <laughs> but all, all very doable today. It's a function of um, and, and independent technology has broken down the walls that, you know, a small company can have as good a 401k as a Fortune 500 company. So, Well, that's, um, that's, that's really um, very helpful. Um, do you have anything that you might add for uh, the last question? Um, okay. Um, well, it looks like we have just used up our time. Okay, and um, one of the things I I do want to let you know is that Beacon State School is um, growing. We have grown from uh, three students when I started a long time ago to now over 50, and we are doing a ribbon cutting on Thursday at at, uh, 5 o'clock in the afternoon to open our new site. So a lot of good things are happening out here, and this is just one of the uh, – this telephone call is and uh, radio show is just one of the very beginning things that we're doing, and perhaps some t- uh, sometime in the future we can have you out to talk and meet with our parents. Oh, we'd, we'd, we'd welcome that. Thank you. And we wish you the best of luck as well with the school. Yes, okay. We wish you the best of luck. Congratulations. Uh, Yes, and I believe I say thank you, Michael and Lisa, for sharing this vital information about providing for our loved ones to our listeners. Terry uh, Terry will be back next week, um, or will be back on October 23rd, and our guest will be special needs architect Kathy Purple Cherry. Uh, Thank you for tuning in to Voice of America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.